podcast from clippingchains.com where we are funding the adventurous life. This is your host Chad Andrews and hi how are you? Hey this week's a Q&A. This is Q&A number 12. That means we've done 11 of these before this one so you can go onto the website and find those previous ones if you're interested in the material that has been covered in the past. But I first want to begin with the standard disclaimer. Every time I do one of these, I get a number of financial questions, and I just have to iterate right up front. I know it gets old that I am not a financial professional. I hold no degrees or certifications in finance or personal finance. So everything mentioned here is simply entertainment. (laughs) Uh, This is not advice, so take that with a grain of salt. And know that I'm kind of shifting away from more of the financial nuts and bolts, and you'll see that reflected in some of the questions, which I appreciate. I'm glad some of these more philosophical sort of meaningful life questions came across this time. And so we'll be talking a lot about that. I want to remind you that these questions are submitted via email newsletter subscribers only. I no longer solicit questions from other places because it was getting to be a bit much. So I just take these questions only from email newsletter subscribers. Every few months or so, I'll send out a request. And if you want to be a part of that, And you also want my free net worth and spending tracking spreadsheet. Hey, you don't have to sign up there. You can find that link in your show notes or anywhere on the website. Should not be hard to find. And you'll find that it's it's actually pretty fun. We do a lot of things over there that we don't do on the website. So if you want a little backstage pass, that is where you'll find it. One other note this time, the questions are kind of batched by theme. I had a number of questions more or less asking the same thing. And so instead of going one by one through many of these, I just sort of kind of uh, batched them into some themes. And I think that works. A couple of these questions were standout alone, but some of the other ones were just sort of batched. So I hope that makes sense. And hey, without further ado, let's jump into this. This is the Q&A number 12. All right. The theme of this first batch of questions is around the current markets and even around our own personal finances, which I'm not going to get way into. All these are pretty complex subjects, and then the latter is a bit more personal, but you know, in the interest of having a blog on the internet, I'll share my thoughts. Uh, the first thing that jumps right out is the S&P 500 performance over the last year. I think last year returned over 24%, somewhere in the range of 25%. For one year, that's pretty fantastic. If you guys recall, I did a post called The Great Comfort of Longevity in the Stock Market back in April of 2023, where I really analyzed the trends of what we should expect over different time periods in the stock market, from, say, one year all the way up to 40-year horizons. And the long and short of it is that the longer you are in the market, the more stable that performance becomes, and in general, the better that performance becomes. So a 25% year is, is really a fantastic year, but it's not beyond the realm of expectation. It's not a tail event. It's within the bell curve there on the, on the plus side. So that's a great year. Uh, if you're anything like me and you have my kind of psychology, when you have a really great year, you're like, okay, what's coming next? Um, that's just how I am in life. You know, if I have a lot of things going my way, if the things are coming up roses, 
for a while, I'm starting to think like, okay, <laughs> where's the bad news? But it doesn't have to be like that. I think I, I shared, for those of you who are newsletter subscribers, which I would recommend, I shared an article by Ben Carlson last week about what we actually can expect after good years like this, because there are many instances where the market has not done well after this. It's that reversion to the mean effect. Uh, a lot of behavioral psychologists, Daniel Kahneman and others will talk about this reversion to the mean effect where when we have above average performance, that could be us as an individual performing, or it could be a market. When we have above average performance, it's not atypical to then have below average performance following that to have that reversion to the mean effect. But it doesn't necessarily have to happen, and there's plenty of instances, and Ben Carlson did a great job of showing that um, the 2010s in particular, we had a number of double-digit years in the stock market back to back to back. And so, hey, you know, 2024 could continue that trend. But, in you know, in short, I, I'm obviously satisfied. I think the stock market has done fantastic considering what the world has been through since early 2020. If you think about the pandemic, and all of those price shocks and all, man, the social disruption, everything that could have really pushed the economy into a depression, frankly. And the action actually governments took to avoid that. And, you know, we could get political real quick. I'm not going to get into that. But, you know, is, is the economy being propped by federal dollars? Yeah. Did it need to be? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's going to be interesting where things go from here. And I'm ever the optimist long term. Uh, Morgan Housel had this great quote about the importance of being a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist. That's really how I feel. And so, you know, how things will go next year, next month, I don't know. I mean, but how things will go in the next decades, 20, 30 years, hey, I'm an optimist. I believe in human ingenuity. I believe in the human spirit. And I believe that we're, that you guys out there are doing really cool things and are going to make the world a better place. So I appreciate all of you. Um, where we are financially. So I, I did a, a couple of calculations here. So I, I don't know, man, I get a little, I, I get a little nervous talking about my own money. I don't, I don't want to come across as a braggart or anything, but I know you guys are curious about this. I, I do get this question. So when I left my job, I left my job in February of 2020, my career, my corporate career. And at the time, the last measurement I'd taken, you know, we, every month or every other month, we kind of run through all our accounts on a spreadsheet we put in the balances in a spreadsheet and tally up our total net worth. So we have our assets and our liabilities. That would be our debts. Um, and if you're an email subscriber, by the way, again, another plug, you get our net worth tracking spreadsheet that we use, not with our information on it, of course. We've scrubbed all that. But it is our spending and net worth tracking spreadsheet. It's old school, man. But hey, man, I'm a fan of the old school. So that's all I'll say on that. So if you want to get that spreadsheet, how we tally up all our information, just become an email newsletter subscriber. And if you've already become a subscriber and you're like, hey, what, what, what spreadsheet? I lost it. Just email me. I'm a nice guy. I'll send you another one. As soon as I confirm that you're not a liar. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, so I took a measurement in January of 2020. And then I just looked at our last one, which was December of 2023. And the good news is that our net worth has grown by 1.65x. So our retirement net worth, quote unquote, when I left my corporate career in early 2020, which is a little bit weird because my wife didn't. So we, we, we didn't retire, whatever. Um, I don't like that term. You know, guys know that. So, so despite two bear markets, there was a bear market in early 2020, a very short-lived one, uh, 
February, March-ish. I think we came out of it by April or something. Very short-lived, maybe the shortest bear market in history, right there around those early COVID freakout period. And then, of course, the one we're coming out of now, like, depending on how you define that bear market, that was a pretty standard one that we're coming out of now. So there's been two bear markets, but despite all this, our um, net worth has, has grown by like 50%, more than 50%, 65%. So my gut reaction is to be like, wow, you know, that's amazing. But I'm not so silly as to think that what's happened in four years can be applied to the future, right? I, of course, ever the uh, short-term pessimist, assume lower returns in the next handful of years. I don't really have any great reason for that. I just, in my mind, do. But I'm a long-term optimist, so when I'm thinking 10, 20, 30, 40 years out, uh, I'm still running with that 8%-ish inflation-adjusted return number in my mind, and I feel good about it. Now, <laughs> here's the downside. Here's what I've got written in red on my notes here. When I looked at our spending, so our spending at the same time in early 2020 versus our spending in 2023, and I keep this kind of rolling 12-month average spending because calendar years or whatever, but I like the rolling 12-month average. And I actually have to give credit to the Frugal Professor over his website, frugalprofessor.com. We've had a couple interviews back and forth between us. Great guy. He has this great monthly financial update where he gives us, as I like to joke, the full frontal. Like he gives us everything, more than I'm going to give you. But he has a 12-month rolling average, and I like that instead of just looking at a calendar year. So anyway, I'm rambling. But when I look at our 12-month rolling spending, it is also up 1.65x since four years ago. So we, our net worth is up 65%, but so is our spending. So you'd be like, ouch, that's not good. Well, I, I disagree. So one thing you guys need to understand is that I'm not really living this as a test. Like, don't look at me as some sort of fire influencer. Uh, God forbid, don't ever call me that. But we only lived off our investments for 2021 just one calendar year and a little bit of some small part of 2022, maybe a small part of 2020. So let's just call it a year and a half. So I don't want you guys to think that I'm actually testing this because we're not. Uh, we make income, especially my wife. My wife was only away from her job for maybe a year and some change, a year and a half. She didn't feel like she had purpose and meaning in her life without work. Is something we've talked a lot about. And so she decided to go back first as a contractor at 20 hours a week. Then she upped that to 30 hours a week because she wanted, there was, you know, just an indication she could be a little bit more part of the team to feel like she's not just on the peripheral as some contractor in the background. And now for all those reasons, she's actually considering going to 40 hours, a full-time gig. Um, she does work from home. It's pretty, pretty cush actually. So I fully support that. And I think if you're out there thinking like, man, I love this financial independence thing, but I don't want to leave my job. Hey, you don't have to. There are no rules. It is life. You get to choose the rules you live by. I think the beauty of financial independence is not the freedom to leave your job. It's the freedom to choose. So we'll leave it at that. So anyway, we lived off our investments for just one year. We had a low withdrawal rate. Our, our net worth was exceeded our spending. Um, you know, what you'll hear if you guys are new to this is that the whole 4% rule, whereby you want to be living off 4% or less of your portfolio each year. It's a very rough rule of thumb. There's a whole lot of more complicated 
modeling scenarios that go into this and to look at how your withdrawal rate can and should probably change over time. So anyway, ours was less than 4%. Everything was good during that time. But when she went back to work, we, between her income, now we rent out a house in Utah, our old house in Utah, we now rent out. Between her income, rental income, and our dividends, that's paying our living expenses. So we are selling very little to no shares. So maybe every now and then when a bigger expense pops up and the and the check hasn't come in yet from her job, we might sell a few shares, but that's pretty rare. We are more or less staying even. She's actually even contributing to her 401k, at least enough to get the employer match. So we're actually back a little bit in saving mode. And so, hey, that's life, right? This is a slight aside, but something I thought was worth pointing out around dividends. I've actually heard in casual conversation, I've even read it in blogs, that folks are want to build a portfolio that's really preferential towards dividend growth, seemingly with the implicit assumption that if my account is generating a lot of dividends and I can have those come to my checking account, then I have a lower withdrawal risk. I don't risk running out of money because I'm not actually selling many, if any, shares. Well, I want to clarify that when you sell dividends, you are effectively withdrawing from your account. It's actually something my wife pointed out to me the other day. And I hadn't really thought through, and she's absolutely right, because when we look at the assumptions on compound growth and wealth accumulation through stock market investing, exponential growth, and all this stuff, that actually assumes that dividends are being reinvested. And that gives you another 1% to 2% historically on average, probably closer to 1% these days, growth rate. And it's not just 1% to 2% more, it's actually... It's the difference between maybe having a 7% growth and a 8 or 9% yearly growth. So it's a huge change in your compound rate over time. And so if you've done nothing, if you get nothing out of this episode, one thing I would suggest is to pause right now, go to your accounts, go to your brokerage account, go to your retirement accounts, and make sure if you are saving, if you're in saving mode, which I'm assuming is the vast majority of you, that you've checked the box. It's just a box. To reinvest dividends, to reinvest dividends. So basically what that means is when dividends are given to you by companies, so companies have these dividends they spit off, we're going to get in the weeds really fast, but companies spit off these dividends and what you want to do is reinvest them right back in your account. So you're actually compounding at a higher rate because if you don't have that box check, they just come to your checking account and you can spend them, but you probably don't need to because you already have a job. Whereas we don't have the income we used to have, so we actually need those dividends to live off of, and we're fine with that. But if you're in wealth accumulation mode, you want to check that box on dividend reinvestment and have those going right back into your account, compounding at that higher rate, okay? So the long and short of this is that I've been obviously happy about what the market has done, especially since what we've been through with the pandemic and all the world's seen in the last four years. It just goes again to show that markets are so resilient. If you open your S&P 500 chart and then right next to it, open your history book and start thumbing through all these terrible things when people thought the end was near, that this is the beginning of the end, right? I mean, doesn't it feel like some days this is just the beginning of the end, right? It's so easy to get kind of down in the dumps and depressed on that. But look through your history books. How easy would that have been to say at countless times in the past? And yet, Human ingenuity is fantastic. Markets are resilient. I'm, you know, call me naive, but I think we've got plenty more time of good years ahead. So 
I, I'm in it for the long haul. I hope you are too. And um, yeah, I feel good about money. I feel good about our personal finances. And I hope you guys do too, right? And if you have any other questions about how to maybe get ahead of ways you don't feel like this is relatable to you, hey, I'm here. Um, send me an email on the contact page. I'll help in any way I can. But again, I have to reiterate, I'm not a financial professional, but yeah. So maybe I'll see you there. All right. Thanks for those questions, guys. I grouped this next series of questions in a theme about, I don't know, experiences versus expectations on life of financial independence, which I actually think is super valuable. And this could be its own episode. It probably should be its own episode. And I'd even say the whole blog has really become this in recent years. I'm not a financial nuts and bolts guy. I think if you're here just because you're interested on making the most money and saving the most money and finding all the right bond and stock funds, I'm not your guy. I think there's way better people doing that on the internet than me. I'm just not your guy for that. I think more holistically. I think big picture. I think philosophically on what gives us the best life, what increases happiness the most, even though I think that's a kind of cringy word for me because I think that emotion is a bit misleading. More contentment is what I'm looking for. So these are the things I'm really focused on. One thing I'll throw right up front, you know, because I've been reading this Daniel Kahneman book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Before I start going down this rabbit hole of my whole life, I think it's really important, this quote that came out of a lot of his research, that goes like this, quote, nothing in life is as important as you think it is when you are thinking about it. Say that again, because it took me a minute for this to settle in. But quote, nothing in life is important as you think it is when you are thinking about it, end quote. So there's a tendency, and they show this in the behavioral psychology research, that when you're really thinking about something, you're more likely to give it more weight, either negative or positive. So when I'm asked to think about my life, I mean, there's certain parts of it I'm going to really be like, oh, man, that wasn't really good, or parts of it I'm going to say they are really good. But it's probably, when I think about the memories of it, way more impactfully than it really is. My life is, in many ways, not so different than it was before. But there are a whole lot of expectations versus experience things that I do like to share. And a lot of it was very much different and very much more challenging than I expected. So a big part of my expectations up front was that I wouldn't feel a mm, lack of social connection. I took for granted the relationships I had at work, the social reps I was getting at work. Not to say I was necessarily besties or, you know, good friends with any of these people I worked with. I didn't spend much time with them other than maybe the occasional happy hour, which I would still call work because I didn't really want to go. Um, but I took for granted those social reps I was getting of just just being in the same hallway with people and talking to them and, you know, practical jokes and stuff like that. Because for many people, if you do leave your job, whether it's because you're financially independent or any other number of reasons, you're inevitably probably going to be at home more, especially if you're in a long-term relationship. I think single people are probably better at getting out. But when you have this person that's a default in your life, it's pretty easy just to kind of like, ah, stay in. And I think that slowly has this insidious creep into a bit of loneliness. And that's something I have to admit I felt and I did not in any way expect. Um, a big part of that was moving. So Another thing I would say is that we did way too much at once. 
And it was just too much change at one time. We sold our home in Denver. We lived on the road in a camper. We didn't really fully talk about what that would look like. And I take the blame for that. This was something when I asked my wife about this question, she said, you should talk about deep and thorough discussions with your partner. <laughs> I, I laugh, but this is something we've had to work through, to be honest with you, because I think, and I see this all the time, one person is really hell-bent on what they want. And the other person is like, ah, you know, I don't know. I just kind of go along with this. And it leads to, it can lead to issues. And I think we've had to work through that because I was hell-bent on what I wanted. And I didn't, I had what's known as an effective forecasting error. I think this is a very common bias we all carry is that we see something in the future that we think is going to finally make us happy. That we think is finally going to be the solution to all that bothers us about our current life. Like, I don't like this commute, so when I don't have it, I'll be happier. I don't like this, you know, boss, when I don't have him, I'll be happier. And it isn't necessarily true because we really underappreciate what life will be like without those things. We have a strong negativity bias. So we really focus in on the things we don't like about our current life and give less mental weight to the things we do. And so I think it's really worth examining how much weight you're putting towards the things you don't like and how you may be underappreciating the things about your current life you do. And I'm not saying it isn't time for a change. Like if you work for a company that truly is toxic, and I hesitate to use that word because I think it's way overused. But if it truly is that, and there are those situations, then it is worth considering making a change. But you have to consider first, are you giving too much emotional weight to those negative experiences? So that's been really important to me. Um, I don't know, expectations versus experiences. I'll talk about climbing a bit. Um, when I was still working in my corporate career, I put a lot of emotional weight into climbing. I think if you've been around here lately or for a while, you know that I've talked a lot about the achievement culture, um, the hustle culture. This was me a thousand percent. I put a lot of weight and self-worth into what I was achieving both at work and out in my climbing. It was very important for me to go out each year and like red point a new higher grade than I did before. Every day was a performance day. It quickly became something that felt a lot more like a job than it did you know, a passion or recreation. I don't like the word passion, but whatever. A hobby, um, something that was recreational, something that was supposed to be de-stressing. It actually became just another stressor. So that's changed a lot. And it's taken me, honestly, about five years. I think I noticed the change about the time I started this website. I think once I was finally working on something that I really felt drawn to and I felt excited to work on, that energy I was putting into new projects softened my drive for that high-end kind of climbing. So I really don't take on like next-level projects anymore. I mean, if something just comes across and I feel inspired, I will. I will get on hard things. I still have goals. I still beat my head against the wall sometimes. I still get freaked out. I still get really frustrated with myself in a way that I think others can feel at the crag and is embarrassing because that is something about me that is inherent and it's something I'm having to really work through, but I do believe it is something that can change. So that's been a, a pretty big, actually I'd say a huge difference in expectations versus experience. I thought I would continue climbing much in the same way I was and hopefully just get better and better and better. And because my job isn't in the way, I'm going to like move up through the grades like crazy. Well, you know, I, I just lost the interest. Maybe that could have been true, but I lost the interest to kind of do that. 
But I don't want to leave this on any sort of negative note. You shouldn't feel bad for me. These have all been very positive changes in my life. So I want to leave here on some overarching pros of this experience because I think this last four years has been an immensely positive time in my life, despite the challenges. Because you grow during challenges, you become a better person during challenges. So one thing I'll say right up front is that I get way less stress. Um, I've joked about this on the podcast and website before. I am super high strung. I used to be a lot more high strung. My wife, she'll always notice when I go to the bathroom, I come out with, you know, I'll go in and I'll just wash my hands and it's like, hurry, hurry, hurry. And I grab the towel and I don't really dry them. And I just kind of touch my hands with the towel and then I go outside and my wife's like, why are your hands wet? I'm just like, I don't know. I just can't like dry my fucking hands. I don't, it, it's something I've been working on a lot. So this less stress has been super impactful because stress is probably the number one thing between behind all that ails us. I think it's a huge thing and it's not as well understood. Of course, we understand that stress is a huge knob in the things that ail us, but I think it's an even bigger knob than we think. And with that has come better sleep. Like last night, I just had a fantastic night of sleep. Those are becoming more and more frequent. And this is someone who struggles with sleep a lot. I'm starting to live this slower pace, like I said. And then Another thing that's been really impactful is this thoughtful approach to life and work as opposed to just simple black and white goals of achievement. So again, I talked about it was always important to be achieving something. And now I have a much more thoughtful approach to the things I take on. And I ask myself, do I really enjoy working on this? Is it just an outlet I enjoy? The beauty of financial independence is that in theory, I don't need to make money doing what I do. So I can take on things that just really just feel like a good outlet. Like I can get in that kind of, you know, flow state, quote unquote, you'll hear people talk about a lot. And it's not something I ever used to get into much. And now I do it almost every day. And so I love that. I love that I can have that time in my day where I can just kind of just get into something and just the world just melts away. I'll note that there was a recent Ezra Klein podcast. He has a podcast on the New York Times opinion where they talked about considerations on taste. And how in the world, I mean, this started long before the internet and social media, but certainly in the age of internet and social media, how we move through the world, our taste, the things we like may be reflecting much more of a group think than we think. And it isn't as much as our own personal taste because we're so dialed into the rest of the world that we all kind of start taking on a collective taste. And I know that may be a little controversial, but I think that episode, it's, it's in your show notes. I'll put it here. I think it's worth considering because one thing I have noticed in the four years is I've kind of drifted slightly out of society in a way that I think may sound negative at first listen, but actually has been a little bit positive to step back and define what it is I really love. I think you do start to develop your own taste. And man, who doesn't root for the person that just like walks down the street to the beat of their own drum so confidently? I mean, who doesn't appreciate that? And so I'm, I'm trying to be that person in a way. And yeah, I think that's worth a consideration. So take a look at that episode, see what you think. And yeah, I think that's all I really have to say. Again, this whole expectation versus experience, this is something I write about all the time. So poke around the blog and I think you'll find a lot more on that subject. All right. Thanks, guys. Okay, this next question actually gets into insurance. So a little bit more nuts and bolts here, a little less philosophical maybe. 
this kind of concept comes up almost every time I do a Q&A. Maybe not every time, but it's pretty frequent. Folks are wanting to know about insurance. So maybe they're looking at going into a gig job, um, rolling out of their W-2 work into something that is a gig, or maybe just not working at all, taking sabbaticals. And a big fear that people have is that they're going to get hosed without workplace insurance, and they're going to have to pay a lot of money. And so we use the Affordable Care Act healthcare plan. So that's lovingly called Obamacare, <laughs> for better or for worse. If you like Obama, it's, it's great. If you don't, it's not great. Um, but I often remind people this act and these healthcare plans have very broad public appeal at this point. Despite all the politics, um, people love it. It polls quite favorably. Could we do better? Sure. But I think with what we have, these plans are quite good. And after having one myself for quite a while, man, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy with how that worked out. And so we use ACA coverage between November of 2020 through June of 2023. At that point, my wife became an employee at her company. She was offered and had to take um, insurance through her company. And because I'm married to her, we could no longer have ACA. That's an important point. If you are married to someone who has a healthcare plan available through work, you cannot take an ACA plan. You have to be on your spouse's healthcare. So that's worth considering. And so when she took that new job in July of this year, I went back on her healthcare, which is kind of a bummer because we're paying more for it. <laughs> and I'm not sure it's any better. So one thing to consider is that a lot of these plans, how much their monthly premiums cost are absolutely tied to your income. So if you're crushing it this year in 2024 and you're making like $400,000, I don't know, let's just say a lot of money, you're in a high tax bracket and you want to leave in September, October, when you take those monthly premiums at the end of the year, they're going to be very high because your calendar year income is quite high. Now, if you think you're going to make zero income in 2025, well, it may be worth considering controlling your income. I mean, you may just have to take it on the chin for those few months. That's what we did. When we left in 2020, we had good income that year. We just basically paid very high premiums for November and December. And then when January rolled around, they dropped off a lot because what you're doing is predicting your income for that year. And if you predict high, they'll give you a tax return at the end of the year. If you predict low, there's no penalty, but they'll add it to your tax liability at the end of the year. So if you came up $1,000 short, they're going to be like, hey, we want our money, so you owe us in taxes. That's how this works. I'll put a link in the show notes. I wrote this kind of notorious post about how we had negative health insurance costs. And I wrote this in August of 2021. And it kind of blew up in a way I didn't expect. I actually got contacted by mainstream media organizations. <laughs> I didn't play ball with that because I was worried about the perceptions on talking about having negative health insurance costs, but it's something I've thought a lot about. That's maybe a whole nother discussion. I would suggest people check out that post and the comment thread. A lot of comments came in with people talking about their experiences. But basically at the time, we signed up, we were in Utah. We signed up for a select health bronze plan. And at the time, it cost us $9.36 per month. That's two people. We're in our late 30s, Southern Utah, non-smokers, on a $60,000 per year income. Now, why it ended up costing negative, like why we were actually making money is because our select health plan offered $20 per month per person, like gift card reimbursements 
for walking. If I walk 7,000 steps at least 20 days per month, we'd get $20 per person. So we were getting $40 in Amazon gift cards and paying $9.36 per month for healthcare. So we were making um, you know, a little over $30 a month for our healthcare. It was amazing. Now, why it was so cheap was because of the American Rescue Plan Act that passed in 2021 as part of the whole COVID uh, relief package. There were a couple of these acts that passed in 2020 and 2021. And so a big part of that was making healthcare quite affordable. So our timing was good. Basically, we, it, it ended up getting to about $93 per month as, those, as some of that ARPA relief was easing. So they started pulling back some of those subsidies. And so our healthcare, by the time we left Utah in the middle of last year, was costing us about $93 per month. So still not bad. You know, I think people think when they leave their employers, they're going to have to be paying hundreds of dollars a month. Now, one thing I want to underline here is that we did use a bronze plan. So that's the bottom of the barrel. These are high deductible healthcare plans. So insurance will cover just standard preventative care. So if I go to a doctor, that visit is covered. I don't pay anything. Now, if I broke my arm, I'm pretty much out of pocket for that, up to a deductible, which I think for us was $10,000. And we were fine with that because even if we hit that deductible, that wasn't going to ruin us financially. That's a whole nother conversation about probability. I actually think silver plans are a racket for a lot of people, especially for young the probability of you actually hitting your deductible on any given year is quite low. And that's why these companies make a lot of money because people have a very serious loss aversion. They're worried about that money they may have to pay, but the probability of them paying that is quite low. So I've always been very happy with a bronze plan, even though I have some recurring medical conditions. Now, maybe if I knew I was going to have a big, you know, big year next year, like I'm going to have a baby or something, then maybe I'd consider a silver plan. Maybe. Um, I don't plan on breaking my arm or anything like that. That can happen. But I think the probability is low. You know, I've made it, you know, knock on wood, but I'm almost 40 now and I haven't broken any bones or been in any major accidents. So I'm going to keep that trend alive as much as I can. And I've been happy with the bronze plan. So that kept things cheap. Now, if you were looking at a silver plan, you would be looking in the range of probably $300 a month versus maybe 90 to to $100 a month. Now, this is me talking for Rocky Mountain. I'm looking at Colorado now, actually. Prices aren't that much different. So in Colorado today, you can go to kff.org. They've got a subsidy calculator. I'll put that link in the show notes. If I use those same, same data, our current age, two people, you know, we're right around 40 years old in Colorado, non-smokers, let's just say 60K income, a silver plan would cost us $306 per month right now versus a bronze plan of 99. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take the bronze plan every day. I just think it's the better value. Chances are you're not going to call on that much at all. And after using high deductible healthcare plans for now, five, six, seven years, I don't know how many years we've been on one. I don't think we've ever paid more than two or three grand out of pocket, which would be less than the premiums alone on the silver plan. So something to consider. Now, I think one thing folks are concerned about, you've maybe heard of the subsidy cliff. So for the ACA plans, if you were at 400% of the federal poverty level for your family size, now this is before the pandemic, 
If you went $1 over that, if your income was $1 higher than that, your health care would become very expensive. All the subsidies would go away and things got much more expensive. So it was really important to stay below that 400% federal poverty level. And there are ways to do that to lower your taxable obligation. One thing to consider on income first is that if you're living off, let's just say, brokerage account, if you're selling shares, if you bought a share for $100 and you're selling it for $130, you're not going to be taxed on that $100 because you already were. That was money out of your W-2 income. So you're only taxed on that $30. So remember, you can actually, when I say we had $60,000 in income, we actually may have been spending, I'm just making this up, we didn't, but you could spend maybe even $100,000 and only log $60,000 worth of income. So I don't want to go too into the weeds on this. That's why I think you should check out the posts I put here in the show notes to, to get way more information on this. But for instance, in 2024, the federal poverty level for a family of two, that's our size, is 19,720. So 400% of that, just times it by four, is 78,880. So if we had income that exceeded that, we would be in trouble in terms of healthcare costs. It would get a lot more expensive. But here's the catch. <laughs> As part of that ARPA, the subsidy cliff has been removed through 2025. So for this year and next year, there's still no subsidy cliff. Basically, what they do is that they just, it's tiered. It's basically as your income gets higher, you get less and less subsidy, which makes sense, right? I never really understood the cliff, but I'm sure it makes sense to somebody. So you want to be mindful of that going forward because after 2025, could it be reinstated, the subsidy cliff? Yes, it could. Will it? I. Here's the thing about government. Once you give people something, it's really tough politics to take it away doesn't matter whether a, a Democrat gave it to people or a Republican. If people have gotten used to something and it's going to make their lives more expensive, that loss aversion is very strong and people vote with that. So it's really hard to take it away. I suspect it'll keep getting extended. We may stop talking about the subsidy cliff because it may just never come back. But let's just assume it will after 2025. So be mindful of that. Check your federal poverty level. What is 400% of that for your family size? It's not hard to find on the internet. You can find it real quick. And just know that maybe right now you're getting cheaper healthcare, but if you get used to that level of spending, you better um, you know, fudge in some, some idea of how healthcare could get a lot more expensive for you. And I think it will be getting expensive either way. There's a lot of articles out there about how these ACA plans will be costing more and more, um, but hopefully not you know, like 30% more overnight, right? So the short answer is that I really liked the ACA plans. We had good experiences with them. I found plenty of doctors that took the plan I had. No issues there. We were paying at first like negative dollars. We were making money on it. And then we were eventually paying about $93 per month. But we were still getting those gift cards for $40 a month. So it was only costing us about 50 bucks a month to be fully insured. And these were high deductibles, but we never even came close to hitting that deductible. So all was good. We really liked it, and I would have it today if I still could. All right, thanks. All right, this next question is about real estate and actually our personal experiences with real estate. And so if you've been around for a while, you know that we focus on wealth building through 
stock and bond investment. So stock market, bond markets, that's pretty much been it. We owned a house, but we understood that house to be largely a consumption item. That's something I talked to uh, the white coat investor about. You may recall from that conversation where we established firmly, and I've talked about this many times, that the house you own is a consumption item. It can be an investment, but it's generally a poor one, and you would do better to invest in other places, such as a simple index fund. Very easy. Uh, there's no there's no refrigerator dying in your index fund. There's no hail on your roof on your index fund, and it generally returns about 10% long-term on average. And in a very hot market, when I did the analysis on our own home, and I'll have that link in your show notes, we made about 2% on average, and that was in a hot Denver market, great neighborhood, uh, about as good as we could get. And we didn't return that much. So keep that in mind. We're going to talk about real estate a little bit more. we got a couple of questions. But first, we kind of did shift here this past summer into being somewhat of real estate investors when we decided to keep our house in Utah. When we moved to Colorado, we decided to keep that house, stay in the market, and rent it out instead. Now, why did we decide to do this? Well, for one, I was banking on the fact that the house would continue to grow, albeit slowly, in equity. And so those days of 20% year-over-year growth are over. Thank God, that's not healthy for the market. But if we could get something around 3% yearly equity growth on that house, and we have someone paying us rent, so we've got cash infusion every month, minus our costs. You know, if we have to replace something or do some minor maintenance, obviously we have those costs. So it felt like a good idea to stay invested in the market as opposed to selling it, sitting on a bunch of cash in some sort of cash account or high interest savings account, and just waiting for the mortgage rates to come down to a level I felt acceptable to buy again. We would just stay invested instead. Okay, so that's a little bit of a long windup. So this first question says, I'd like to hear any details you're willing to share on your remote landlord experience, because we are landlording this thing, quote unquote, um, from 10 hours away. Are you using a property manager? Yes, we are. I'll talk about that in a second. How much they charge you? 10%. That's pretty standard. 10%. We talked to a number of property managers, at least in the St. George area. They were all charging 10%. Didn't sound very negotiable. I think that's pretty standard from my research. Now, maybe you'll get lucky and get something like in the 8 or 9% range. Hopefully, you're not unlucky. I've seen upwards of 12%. I think 10% is quite standard. How much are you charging in rent as a percentage of your mortgage? Okay, we'll talk about that. And what would you recommend based on your experience? So our economics on this house are quite different for one big reason. We bought that house all cash. And so I think I talked about this somewhere at the beginning of this episode. We had paid off our mortgage in Denver. And so when we bought this house in St. George, we had enough cash available just to buy it outright. Um, it was pretty instrumental to us buying it. It was a very competitive market. This was late 2020. There were a bunch of all-cash offers, and that continued for the next two years, basically. And so what we're getting right now is like the full price of the rent. We don't have – we've actually incurred no costs. We've had no maintenance issues in seven months now, um, minus that 10% property management. So he takes his 10% every month, no matter what happens. But otherwise, it's been pure profit in that regard. Now, just to – have a thought experiment, I went ahead and ran an economic case assuming that we had taken on a mortgage in December of 2020. And at the time, that mortgage rate in December of 2020 would have been about 
the salad days, right? And so I took the sale price of that home with a down payment of 20%. So it's your standard conventional loan. And if I look at what our mortgage would have been then versus our rent, our rent to mortgage ratio with this hypothetical mortgage would be about 1.48. So again, just to repeat, I pretended we had taken on a mortgage in December 2020 at 3% with a 20% down payment. Our rent that we're charging today in January 2024 would be about 1.5x our mortgage. And that, I want to note, does not include escrow or maintenance. So it does not include property taxes. It does not include insurance. It does not include the maintenance costs. And it does not include property management costs. So these are all very much important. And if all costs are included, if we add in that escrow, if we add in that property manager, and if we add a 1% maintenance, that's the rule of thumb that you should consider yearly maintenance to be about 1% of the property value, we'd be losing about $100 a month. It would not be a great proposition. That's the problem right now. So I would not have purchased this property as a rental. It's roughly a median price home in this area, probably below median now because they put a lot of fancy houses around this area now. At the time, it was probably median price. And you're going to typically get more value out of renting a home on the lower end. This is my anecdotal experience talking to other people. I'm not a real estate expert, but folks tend to do better economically as real estate investors by purchasing rather cheap properties. Uh, There's probably some exceptions to that. If you think that's wrong, that's fine. Leave a comment. We can talk about it again. I'm not an expert on this, but I don't think this property would have made a good investment. And if we had a mortgage on it, I don't know that I would have kept it as a rental because we'd probably be losing again about $100 a month. That's not good. You don't want to be losing money unless you just need to keep the property for some reason. Like if you took a job assignment in Australia, we had neighbors that did this in the past. They were gone for two years and they wanted to keep their house because they knew they'd be back. So they rented it. I don't know if the economics were great for them, but it made sense. Um, You know, so that's one consideration. Now, Here's the thing. If we bought this house today, even at the same price, if we took 2020's price but applied today's mortgage rates, which at the time I ran this analysis just a few days ago, uh, the typical mortgage in this area would be 7.505%. So 7.5% mortgage. That rent to mortgage ratio would be 0.89. So we would definitely be losing money on this. And that's not including any costs. No escrow, no property management, no taxes, no insurance, nothing, no maintenance, we'd already be losing quite a bit of money monthly. So again, I would not personally, at least at this median price home in this area, I can't speak to every market in the country. So do your own analysis. But I would not be purchasing a single family home in this area to rent out with a mortgage. Um, I just wouldn't. I just don't. It's just not making sense to me. So we can start a conversation here if you guys are seeing something different and I'm not understanding something because, again, this is not my forte. But this property would make a pretty terrible rental if I took out a mortgage on it today, especially at the price it actually is at now. It's it's no longer at 2020 prices, I can tell you that. So it would make for a pretty terrible rental. And it's working for us quite well because we already had it paid off. And it's just a cash infusion and it's a way for us to stay in the market. Now, one thing my wife pointed out when I was talking about this with her is that she's like, you need to consider, though, that maintenance and property management 
these sort of fees you incur as a landlord are tax deductible. So it's not just pure expense. You can deduct those expenses from your taxes. So that helps with your economics a bit. So I'll just throw that out there. The one other thing I would still say, we've talked about this a lot in many episodes and blog posts, is this idea of house hacking. I still don't like the term hacking, hacking. I don't, you know, such a millennial thing, but, and I'm a millennial, elder millennial, but I am a millennial. But house hacking, I think, still works. So this idea that if you rent out a space in the home you already live in, so maybe that's a room, maybe you have an ADU that you haven't put a ton of money into building just to make rent. I don't know if those economics would work, but if it's already there, some space that you have to put minimal investment into to start getting some rental income and basically offset your costs, not necessarily make money, but to lower your cost of living. Because remember, for almost everyone everywhere, housing is their number one cost. That is still a valid consideration. So if you're out there like, Chad, yeah, I know that buying a house is a consumption item. I know it's not a great investment, but I still want it anyway because my emotions tell me that I will feel happier as a homeowner. Hey, I get that. I'm with you. Again, life is not only lived on a spreadsheet. Consider the house hacking. Consider that approach to renting out a room to your friends, especially if you're young. That can still be valid in this market. But man, I'm not seeing a ton of opportunities to go out and buy single family homes, at least at those medium prices. Now, maybe, you know, if you're scrounging in these lower price home areas, then there's maybe some opportunity there. But I don't know. I, I have some ethical considerations that I wouldn't be able to move forward with that. That's me. So maybe enough on that question. Thanks for the question. Basically, I think this has been really easy. We've not incurred any maintenance. It's been breezy. We got really good tenants. I think that's super important is to really vet your tenants. That's a whole nother conversation about the vetting process. And we actually did have a good process in place to make sure these people were good. And yeah, so far it's been great. I mean, I hope in a year I don't come in there and they've destroyed it from the inside. But we just had our property manager just the other day, yesterday actually. He went in and did an inspection, sent us photos. I mean, it looks great. doesn't look like how I decorate the place, but it looks great. So, so far we're pretty happy with this decision. But your mileage may vary. All right, thank you so much. That was a great question. Okay, this next one comes about insurance again, but this is a little bit more in terms of travel insurance and not just the insurance we would have if we're just sitting in our place of residence, hanging out, you know, kicking it around, but we're actually on, in this case, this question came as a sabbatical consideration. Now, this wasn't submitted as part of the Q&A, but I think it's actually uh, something I come across every now and then I thought might be worth throwing in here. So this individual, along with their partner, is considering... I believe a, yeah, looks like year to year and a half sabbatical during this transitory career phase, which I think is a great idea, actually. You know, I think and more and more, the more I think about it, I really like Jeff and Preeti Wright's approach. It's, I believe, episode 62. Yes, episode 62, where they aren't necessarily interested in walking away from their careers. They like the jobs they have. They actually want to continue working full-time for their typical lifespan, maybe take a slightly early retirement, but aren't interested in being done with work in their 30s and 40s, but are interested in taking 
relatively frequent sabbaticals. I believe as I'm saying this right now, they're on another one. So cheers to those guys. They just took a big one in 2020 for a year. And now just a few years later, they're on another one for a year. And that's pretty amazing. So I had some thoughts there and I sent this along to them. So they're on episode 62. And also Jeff, who was on episode 44, along with Megan Walker quite a while back. And then very recently on episode 77, where we kind of mold around the social dilemma of extended travel. But anyway, I sent her original question over to these guys because they have traveled extensively internationally much more than me. I will say for full disclosure, when I've traveled internationally, I have done nothing for insurance. I, especially in Europe, just assumed I would be part of their healthcare system whereby it's extended to anyone in the country. And even if I got wrecked, I wouldn't be out of pocket on that. I don't know if that's actually true. My understanding at the time was that it was, but it seems like there's a huge gray area on that. And so what Jeff wrote back was that he said, he admitted there's really no great travel insurance unless you're willing to pay a whole lot of money. He says they've always gone with a company called Inzubai, Inzubai, Insurance Inzubai, and have, quote, just always prayed to God that we don't ever have to file a claim, end quote. Um, so that's one consideration, but Jeff actually said he really likes safety wing. And so I'm not going to go into the details here. Those are two companies to consider. I would listen to their episodes that I already mentioned where they talk about this a little bit more in detail. And you can consider that on your own for international travel. This is for international travel. Now for domestic travel, I do have some experience there because I do consider myself relatively knowledgeable on the Affordable Care Act healthcare plans. I don't know if I'd call myself an expert, but I do have some lived experience and I've spent a hell of a lot of time researching it for this blog and just for my life. What I can tell you is that when you're traveling, you are covered out of network if you're out of your state. So let's just say you're in Oregon and you set up an ACA plan in Oregon, but then you go in your van or whatever and you travel the country. Well, when you want to do your standard just uh, yearly checkups with a doctor or dentist or whatever, you're going to want to make sure you do that in your state and in your zone where you're covered. You're probably going to need to go back to your hometown to get that done. And that's what I've met people on the road, even older folks who are on um, Medicare, those sort of things. They go and do that as well. They just make sure they're around their old town or state when they need to do those standard checkups. But heaven forbid, if you're in a car accident or you get hurt climbing and you're not, you know, you're way over in Kentucky or in the red or something, you're still not going to be uninsured. You're just going to be out of network. So it would cover you for an emergency situation, but it will cost you more most likely. I think I'm correct on this, but I'm totally going off the top of my head right now. I didn't really research this at all. So take this with a giant grain of salt, but that was my understanding. So when we traveled with an ACA plan, we'd set that plan up in Colorado we spent the entire trip not in Colorado. I never had to file a claim, so I did not test this. But my understanding is that you would want to do your standard checkups and things like that in your area where you are registered, and then anything else would be out of network, but you at least wouldn't be hung out to dry completely if something happened to you. That's my understanding. So again, check out those episodes for international insurance. For domestic, you're just going to want to sign up for an ACA plan. Consider doing it over a calendar year for the reasons we already discussed, because when the government looks at your premiums for your insurance, they're going to look at a calendar year. It's not a moving average. So if you take a trip from June to June, but you had a whole lot of 
income in the early part of one year, and then you're going to have a whole lot of income in the last part of the other year, you're going to pay a lot of premiums. Whereas if you just take a clean year off from January to December, you may log effectively no income or very little income and have much lower insurance. I know that can be tricky for a lot of people, especially if you're like me, a lot of people wait out the um, bonus season or something before they leave a job, which in my old world was right around the March, April timeframe. So that's a consideration, but um, just throwing that out there. Okay. Great question. Hope that helps people. Almost every time I do a Q&A, I get a question about short to medium term savings goals. Sometimes people have asked me about saving for a camper or a car. Often it's a house, though. A lot of folks are like, well, how, you know, I want to invest. I want to save for my retirement, but I'm really focused on getting a house. So this fellow is considering a house. He wants to have a down payment on a house sometime in the near future, maybe, say, in five years and wants to know how to prioritize contributing to traditional or Roth 401k versus Roth IRA versus high yield savings. He sees the value in a 401k contribution, right? We've talked about this. Roth IRAs are also super great. But then he just needs to have some cash for five years because the idea here is, I mean, me personally, it's kind of an arbitrary cutoff, but I would say I would not invest any money in the stock market, not a dime that I will need in less than five years. The stock market is far too volatile over that short of a time range. You could put in $100,000 in the stock market today and have $30,000 in five years. It could happen. It's happened before. It'll probably happen again. Now, the flip side is you could make a ton of money. So it's a gamble, but let's, let's call it what it is. It looks like a duck, smells like a duck. It's probably a duck. It's a gamble. So I would not be putting any money in the stock market that I need in five years or less. Me personally, I'd be thinking maybe 10 years or less. But anyway, so this fellow is 26 years old. He's professional. He's doing all the right things. He's saving some money, but he's thinking about this house and he wants to know like, how do I prioritize these different investing vehicles versus saving for cash? So right up front, I told him what we've already talked about in the last question is that I want to make sure we're established that a home is not necessarily this thing we must have. We must not be homeowners. There's a very strong ideal in America, some other place as well, Australia, the UK. Homeownership is very culturally important. But is it the best financial move? For some people, it is. For people who save and invest in no other way other than the home they own, then it's probably worth doing. But a lot of you listening to this are investing in other ways already that are better returns. So. First of all, consider that your home is simply a consumption item. And if you want to consume in that way, if you need that stability, maybe you've got young kids and you really want them to stay in a school district or something like that, I understand that. Let's move forward, assuming that we've already decided that home ownership is more of a consumption item than it is an investment. I want to underline that three times so we're on the same page. Home ownership is more a consumption item than an investment, all right? Let's first look at the key differences between Roth and traditional in your 401k or IRAs. It doesn't matter. But basically, when you make a traditional contribution to, let's say, a 401k, those contributions are not taxed today, but they will be when you withdraw. So if you were putting in 
contributions at age 26 and you withdraw on one day at age 66, you will be taxed at your tax rate at age 66. So ideally, that would be lower. If the tax code does not change, your tax rate would ideally be lower in retirement than it is during your working years, especially if you're in your peak working years, like say in your 30s or 40s. Folks tend to make very high incomes in those years or higher incomes than they will in retirement. Now, Roth contributions, alternatively, are taxed now at your current tax rate. But when you go to withdraw them, whenever, at least five years later, but maybe even 40 years later, they will not be taxed at all. So another important point is that traditional contributions are tax deductible in the current year. So if you make $10,000 of contributions to your 401k, you can lob that off your taxable income. So if you made $100,000 in income, you have $10,000 of traditional contributions, then you will only be taxed on $90,000 of income. So that has its advantages too. So if you exist in a high tax bracket now and think you will be in a lower tax bracket when withdrawing these funds, and most do, it makes sense to prioritize traditional contributions. Now, the exception would be for those working in the 12% or lower tax bracket, especially if you're in the 10% tax bracket. Like maybe if you're early in your career, you're just getting going on a low salary, or you've taken a job that just doesn't pay a super high salary, but you think that one day you'll be in a higher salary. Now, maybe it makes sense to go ahead and just pile into that Roth because, I mean, the best you're ever going to get is 10%. Like that's the lowest tax bracket there is. So if you're already in that, then you might just go ahead and just pile into the Roth. But if you're in the 22 or 24% tax bracket or 32 or 35, and by the way, I've got a new tax bracket for 2024 built out for those on the website. If you want to take a look at that image, it's quite handy. I use it all the time. It's got capital gains and ordinary tax rate. Anyway, that's an aside. If you're in a high tax bracket, I would be piling into those traditional contributions. I'd probably bypass my Roth 401k altogether. But, you know, at the end of the day, man, personal finance is personal. When I didn't know a ton about money, I just split it 50-50 because I was like, I don't know, man. This all sounds like Greek. Just I'll just do half in one, half in the other. Like I was saving, right? I was still saving. So there's no wrong answer. We like to get wrapped up in optimizing, especially the nerdy engineering types. They think it's a failure if they don't optimize to the nth degree and get every single thing right. Man, if you're like maxing out any of these accounts, you're doing it right. You're like, you're 26 years old. You're going to be in great shape on down the road. So don't get too worried about this. At least get the employer match on those 401k accounts, those retirement accounts. Then maybe go max out a Roth IRA. I personally didn't do it this way. You got to remember there's income limits. This gets complicated really fast. But if you're within those income limits, I'd maybe at least get the employer match on a traditional contribution if you're in a higher income. Move to your Roth IRA, max that out, come back, finish maxing out your 401k. And then for saving for the house, well, again, you just have to decide how important that is for you it may make sense to prioritize saving for that over investing for a while. I would at least get the employer match though on a retirement account, on a 401k. I would at the minimum be contributing to that to at least get that employer match. And then maybe if if owning this house is super important, you're piling the rest into that into some sort of high yield savings account or money market account. I'd just look for the best rate basically. And that's the best you can do. And that's why I always say there's an opportunity cost to home ownership. 
Because when you're saving all that cash, you can't be investing in other places that are probably going to generate a higher return. But again, life is not lived on a spreadsheet, right? And so if owning a home is really emotionally important to you, then you just may have to put the retirement savings aside. You're 26, you'll be fine. So I hope that helps. I think these are great questions, really important questions. And ultimately, personal finance is personal. You'll have to make those hierarchy of contribution decisions for yourself. But again, if you've decided that home ownership is king, then I would at least get that employer match and then pile the rest into some sort of high interest cash account, maybe a CD, but those have terms. So wandry as usual. That's it. All right. Thanks. Okay, this last question I wanted to save because I think it really hits at a lot of the bigger picture things I always have on my mind. And so I thought this was a really great question. Not surprising at all, considering who it came from. This individual often sends me very thought-provoking emails, questions, comments. And so I really value it. And he says, why are we, or rather the online fire community, so concerned about the loss of purpose when we stop working a traditional job? If we were resourceful enough to reach FI in the first place, surely we can place some trust in ourselves to figure things out afterwards. Is maybe the loss of purpose a symptom of overly using work as a source of meaning in the first place? And so my gut reaction to that right off the top is, of course. So I'm not sure when this will go live, but there is a very recent post I just wrote about this subject was maybe kind of a whiny baby post, to be honest with you, now that I'm thinking about it. Not as excited about it as I was at first, but, and it is how I feel though. It, it is weird to operate on the outside of society, whether or not you work. It just feels like there's this whole other machine going on that you're not part of and that everyone has their place, their little cog on that machine. And no matter if they're famous or no one's ever heard of them, they all are doing their part to kind of move society forward. And as crappy as we may think our job is, the fact that you're paid for it means it means something. It's needed. We could argue this. Maybe some jobs are more necessary than others, but we're all part of this machine that is society. And societies exist and function because individuals act for a greater good beyond themselves. And so even if we don't love our work, we all act as some piece in the machine that makes the world go round. And so I think when we step away from that, at first, we may be suffering from a high degree of burnout. It's very common now. The the modern working world is 24-7 or have to be on our emails constantly. I felt this. I felt like I had to be checking emails at all hours of the day. I took shifts that were overnight, even in a corporate office job. So I understand this. And so I think the first initial phase and why people are so drawn to this financial independence is that we can just opt out of that. And so at first is going to be this desire to just like, oh man, I want to catch up on everything I wasn't doing. I want to sleep my face off. Then I want to travel my face off. I want to indulge. But a lot of that is, if we're honest, self-indulgence. And so I think that eventually runs its course. Now, that may be, I mean, weeks for some people. For other people, it could even last years where you're just getting something out of your system. You're going out and you're experiencing the world and you're soaking it up like a sponge. But then eventually, I think there's just a strong human desire because after all, we are one of the most social species on the planet to be a part of the greater society. And so I think a big part of what behavioral psychologists show makes us happiest is serving others. 
and getting out of a space that serves ourself and getting more into a space that's helping others. Now, that could be directly, you know, obviously there's many volunteer opportunities where you can be out helping folks directly, or it could just be, you know, I feel like for me, this is it because I'm hopefully helping some of you. And that gets a lot of value to me. I, I hear from people all the time, you know, thanking me for this and that. And so that's obviously important to me. And one thing I've noticed is that early retirees that I've seen suffer the most don't have something in their life that is helping anyone beyond themselves. So again, self-care is critical. It's necessary. But after we've been cured of burnout or whatever, there's a natural draw. Again, humans are the most social species. Maybe we're one of the most social species. There's a natural draw to act in a way that benefits others. And sure, that can be volunteering. But I found that those who are young, say, less than 45 or so, they eventually feel a need to show income to assess their value. I, I know that may seem odd, but is this good? I, I, you know, I'm not sure, but I, I, I feel it. You know, I, I wrote about how much I love to write, but I also feel a strong desire to make it something resembling at least a half-assed career, you know, whereby someone or some institution attaches a monetary value to work. I think I've, found, I've, I've definitely found that important to me. My wife felt that. And anecdotally, when I've talked to other people, they've also felt that. They want to be part of something that, that assigns a value. And I don't know if that's good. I just know that that's, a, you know, that's maybe conditioning, but we, we feel that, and I feel that. Another thought here are that memories and stories are important. We want to have a narrative of our life that paints us as at least a good person, if not, honestly, a bit of a hero. And we may find that a life centered around leisure falls short of that narrative we want for our lives. If we just are living for ourselves and just living a life of leisure, it's hard to feel like a hero with that narrative, right? Um, and I think that's a pretty common sentiment. So that's something I've thought a lot about. At least that, maybe not a hero, but at least like a good person, again, who's serving others. I think that's important. And again, this individual asks, if we were resourceful enough to reach five in the first place, surely we can be trusting ourselves to figure things out afterwards. And I think that's true. But I also think a lot of people, especially when they're in this phase of accumulating wealth and being really optimized in our life, again, yeah, resourceful does mean optimized. And so my question is, does that translate as well to contentment or happiness? I've known many, many highly optimized people who do not seem very happy. They obsess over macronutrients. They obsess over sets and reps. They obsess over their climbing pyramid, uh, obsess over their weight. It's very easy to be, or who knows how many books you read this year. It's really easy to be very focused on optimization at the expense of happiness. So yes, I do believe eventually if you are resourceful, you will come to an understanding of what really does bring you contentment, but you might have to dig through it for a while to get on to the other side. And this individual has also mentioned to me in the past that he hears all these narratives that there are downsides to this sort of life. There's downsides to full-time climbing. There's downsides to full-time travel. But maybe he needs to go out and feel it anyway and to experience it anyway. And I don't disagree with that. So, yeah, I think he's probably right. If you're resourceful enough to get here, you'll probably be resourceful enough to figure it out. It may come at the expense of a lot of self-assessment. And I think that's a good thing. So, yes, I, I agree with everything that's being said here. Um, I just think it's really important that we understand the difference between self-serving activities and 
I don't know, society serving activities. Because I think we've gotten to a point in the world, and this is maybe getting on a soapbox where there's a whole lot more interest in self-serving than there is in the global service of others. And I think we see the results of that globally, certainly in America, but globally as well. So I'll end that soapbox there. Thanks, guys. This has been a great time. I love doing this. This is so fun. I actually usually not great at being unscripted. So hopefully I'm not too rambly. And again, if you want to participate in these in the future, you need to be an email newsletter subscriber to send in some questions. So I, I solicit those questions every few months or so. It's been a while this time, but look out for those in the future and we can get your questions answered. All right. Thanks, guys. See you soon. I want to remind you or let you know for the first time that I write a weekly newsletter that has really become popular in recent months. I put a lot of things in there that aren't deserving of their own post online, such as books I'm reading, various articles as it relates to personal finance or life, sometimes some music, sometimes not. A little bit of everything that keeps you on your toes. It is not just a notification of new posts. You don't need that. I want to add some flavor, and so you can get that there each week. Head on over, put in your email over at clippingchains.com. It is free. You can unsubscribe at any time. All right, guys, I hope you have a fantastic week. See you next time.